Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and I think we can start today by jumping right in on the first batch of listener mail, which is in response to our episodes on sinkholes. Are you ready, Rob? Let's do it. Okay, this first message comes to us from Thomas. Thomas says, I was just listening to your episode on sinkholes. While not actually a sinkhole, the episode reminded me of an event that happened while I was living in The Loop in downtown Chicago in 1992. I was in law school at the time and interning at a law firm on Wacker Drive. I had an office with a window overlooking the Chicago River, pretty sweet for a young intern. One day I was watching as a crew were driving pilings, basically giant logs, into the riverbed next to the Kinsey Bridge. I could feel the reverberation of the pounding even up in the high-rise where I was located. Suddenly, everyone started running around like something bad had happened. Looking toward the water, I could see what was causing the chaos. A giant whirlpool had appeared right where they were pounding the pilings. Within minutes, the area was surrounded by fire trucks and emergency vehicles. Then helicopters appeared. After a period of time, a voice came over the emergency system in the building and announced that there had been ordered an evacuation of the loop and that we had to leave the building. Going downstairs, I walked out into what I can only describe as a calm version of a Godzilla movie. The streets were filled with people, and police and firemen were directing everyone to leave the loop immediately. They had called in the L-train cars and just started piling everyone into them and sending them outside of the loop. I ended up on the south side of Chicago, and I eventually made it to a friend's house and was unable to return to my apartment for several days. It ends up that what had occurred was one of the pilings pierced through the roof of an abandoned subway line. The water immediately started rushing in and sucked the piling through the hole. The hole then started expanding and the Chicago River was effectively draining through the hole and filling the entire underground rail system. And the reason for the evacuations, the sub-basements of the high-rise buildings in the loop. The fire department was concerned that they were going to lose integrity of the sub-basements for buildings like the Sears Tower, and, like dominoes, they would topple over. They tried everything to cover the hole, but the force of the water was too strong. At one point, they had put divers in the water with a large metal plate, but even that got sucked through and almost killed one of the divers. Finally, they were able to block the hole with a quick-drying cement that is used in underwater construction. This gave them enough time to put permanent covers over the hole and they were finally able to let everyone back into the loop. This lasted for three or four days, and the damage cost almost $2 billion. The humorous side of the story is that, while they call it the Great Chicago Flood of 1992, it was a flood with no visible water. There is also a humorous story about why they call it the Great Leak. It ends up that floods are not covered under insurance, but leaks are. So they tried to classify it as a leak for insurance purposes. Huh. And then he uh, links to a a wiki for the event and a link to a Chicago Tribune article from 92, which has some black and white pictures. So uh, and then finally, uh, Thomas says, I hope this blows your mind. Well, that definitely did. I was not aware of this event. Yeah, yeah, me neither. This is this is all new to me. The Great Leak. I like it, though. I mean, I'm not in favor of 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 great leaks occurring and causing property damage, but it's it's a fascinating little bit of history that I uh, somehow missed out on. 
but the really scary part to me is imagining being a diver sent down to try to cap the lead yes. while it's still suctioning water through it. Ugh. Yeah. It's like urban cave diving or something. Yeah. Yeah. But with a drain at the bottom. <laughs> oh. All right. Uh, here's another one. This one comes to us from Eric. Greetings, my good sirs. I just listened to part one of your episode on sinkholes, where you speculate about the reason heaven always seems to be in the sky, whereas hell always seems to be under the earth. And I have a theory to contribute. It's because of gravity. Ancient peoples didn't understand gravity the way we do, and they could easily observe its effects on the surface of the earth. And so it makes sense to me that heaven would be above, where humans cannot go freely, if at all, whereas hell would be below, where unwise or unlucky humans can end up, whether they want to or not. In short, you must strive to reach heaven, but must strive not to end up in hell, which seems to me like both uh, literally and metaphorically sound. What do you think about that, Joe? Oh, yeah, I think that kind of makes sense. I mean, another way I would put it is that I think some ancient ideas of hell as a place of punishment evolved from a sort of afterlife concept that is more generally the grave. I talked about this some with Bart Ehrman uh, when, mm -hmm. when he was a guest on the podcast last year, and he wrote a whole book about the evolution of at least the uh, Jewish and Greco-Roman and Christian beliefs about heaven and hell. And there, I think the the older ideas is that in most cultures of the region, there was no like reward or punishment in the afterlife early on. The earlier beliefs are just that when you die, you go to this place that might be called something like Sheol, which is like the grave. If there is any life after death, it's just this kind of like uh, shadow of your former existence where nothing much happens and it's kind of gloomy and boring, or maybe there's no afterlife at all. You're just in the ground. And over time, that translates more into the afterlife you don't want. It becomes associated with a place of punishment after death, whereas there's some kind of other existence in some other place if you're being rewarded. And that could be a, uh, that could be a, a temporal uh, afterlife in which at some point you are resurrected bodily from the grave to your reward, or it could be as in the like the Greek view, the Platonic view, a place where the immaterial soul goes after death. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that sounds sounds reasonable. I, I also, I guess, have to to come back to this idea that just the idea of beings or voices originating from places that cannot be reached by humans or are not easily reached by humans uh, really resonates with us. So certainly that, uh, you know, that can apply to the sky and to the cosmos above, you know, the visible mm. uh, universe, but also the unseen world beneath the earth, uh, mountaintops, but also um, interior spaces like um, the hollows of volcanoes. I'm instantly yeah. reminded of the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the documentary, the Herzog documentary that we, uh, we recently watched on the volcanoes, uh, mm -hmm. talking about the, uh, where they were talking to the individual who had gone uh, to uh, the volcano and, uh, and had uh, like met with, be with, a, with a being from uh, the interior, that sort of thing. Yeah. But despite all that, I mean, I also very much can see the intuitive logic of what Eric here is saying. That, yeah. like, if if they're if you're sorting afterlives or or other planes of existence into a good place that is is good to get to but hard to get to, and a bad place that is easy to get to and painful, yeah, the the up down trajectory seems quite clear there. 
I wonder if there, I've never run across it, but I wonder if there is a culture that has an inversion of that or perhaps some sort of fantasy treatment that intentionally goes through the uh, sort of world building exercise of inverting that, of having, mm-hmm. you have to work to earn your place in the ground, in the world below. But <laughs> if you, uh, you know, just live a careless lifestyle, then you'll eventually float free and be lost to the, you know, the cosmic horrors above. The LOA and the, the Morlocks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Any, uh, a reversal of that, that would be interesting. It, well, it's neat how the, the LOA and the, the Morlocks were both horrible fates in their own way, right? Right, yeah. All right, well, uh, that was just half of Eric's uh, uh, bit. <laughs> I don't want to skip over the, the, the praise section of the email. Uh, <laughs> he writes, anyway, just a thought I had while listening and I wanted to share. I've been listening to the podcast for ages, not only since before Christian left, but before Joe and Christian joined. Mm. And I've rarely missed an episode. I was disappointed when the Invention podcast stopped being its own thing, but I'm pleased that you've kept the spirit of it going with your periodic Invention episodes. And I've really enjoyed the little uh, artifact shorts and weird house cinema keep up the great work and thank you for the excellent content farewell and stay safe eric thanks eric yeah oh and you know speaking of christian uh we had mentioned christian's uh kickstarter recently on the show for corridor Mm -hmm. magazine that kickstarter was successful so corridor magazine is going to uh be a real thing it's going to be a reality in the months ahead uh when they have uh, like a date and or a website announced i'll share it with everybody uh, probably in the listener mail episode That is excellent news. Everybody keep an eye out if uh, horror weird fiction is your thing. Absolutely. All right. It looks like uh, the Mailbot is coming forth with more um, hellish content for us here, Joe. Yeah, more afterlife stuff. So this comes from Rachel. Rachel says, Hi, guys. I've been listening to your show for many years now, and I really enjoy the things you discuss. Some of the stuff is a bit over my head, but fun to listen to nonetheless. As a former neuroscience major in college and future neurologist in medical school currently, I especially like the brain-related episodes. I've also got a soft spot for the monster episodes as a fan of horror. Anyway, the reason for this email isn't related to any of that. As you might have guessed by the subject line, what I'm really writing for is to ask this. A while ago, one of you mentioned a companion to Dante's Divine Comedy, or maybe just the Inferno, I can't remember, that gave good footnotes and such for understanding the context of the time, but I can't recall which episode it was in, so I can't go back and check. Do you remember which author translator you recommended? From a quick internet search, it sounds like maybe the one by Mark Musa is is a good start. Not sure if either of you guys had other thoughts. It'll probably be quite some time before I'll actually get around to reading it. I've got a whole shelf full of untouched books that I've collected while in school and haven't had time for, but I'm hoping to get to it someday. Thanks, Rachel. Well, Rachel, I, uh, I'm, I'm no Dante scholar, so I don't have uh, extensive opinions. I haven't surveyed like a lot of different translations, but I can tell you the ones I've read and and my thoughts on them. So when I read the Divine Comedy last year, I read uh, the the Inferno translation by the American poet Robert Pinsky, and that translation has some end notes with it that are pretty good. For the Purgatorio and the Paradiso, I actually used two different translations, uh, combining the, the translations and the notes there. One was the editions of the Purgatorio and the Paradiso by uh, Jean and Robert Hollander. I think Jean Hollander was a poet. Unfortunately, she passed away just the other year. Um, but I think she did the translation and her husband, Robert, uh, who is a Dante scholar or medieval literature scholar, did the uh, did the notes. 
But then also for the Purgatorio and Paradiso, we kind of read them concurrently with the John Chardy translation and footnotes. And in my experience, uh, we really liked the Gene Hollander translation, uh, but Chardy's footnotes were the most accessible. And sometimes they were they were rather funny. They were good footnotes if you really don't know anything and and just want to understand what's being talked about in the poem at a at a pretty basic level. The Hollander translation has great notes, but they go deep. That seems more like a good resource for scholars or something. It's just pages and pages of of notes on every canto. Awesome. Yeah, that that those sound like like really good good uh, additions to to look to. Uh, for my own part, I did uh, Inferno and and Purgatory uh, via the Robert M. Durling translations uh, illustrated by Robert Turner. Uh, I, I found those to be excellent. I, I read those as part of a, a college class on on Dante. I had I forget the the professor's name, but I had was at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and there was this um, this fabulous Dante uh, teacher, and he was this uh, kind of shortish uh, Italian American man, and uh, so he had he had a wonderful accent, and he had this just real enthusiasm for Dante, and I remember him talking about how he was going to dress as Dante for Halloween, and I asked him <laughs> if he was going to have the the peas is it peas on the forehead uh, as in purgatory. That one has to work off. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. The angel carves seven peas into Dante the Pilgrim's forehead, yes. and they are each each time he goes up one level of the mountain of purgatory, one of the peas is erased. Yeah, because he's been purged of that one of the seven sins. Yeah. So, so I ask him, if he's going to have the peas on his forehead, and he says, "No, I'm in heaven." You know, like, oh, of course he's I not. See. He's not going to go as the as the infernal or the purgatory Dante. He's the heavenly uh, Dante. Um, but speaking of heaven, when I read these. Um, Durling and Turner had not put out their Paradiso yet. Uh, I, I believe it's out, or it's probably been out for like 15 years at this point. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I really enjoyed those. But I also, had, it was, I also had the benefit of being in a class and having a really cool teacher. So uh, I think he had some supplemental information that he gave to us as well. Um, I, I feel like it's definitely a text that if you can have the original Italian like in an opposing page, like many mm-hmm. of these do, and I think, I think Durling's did, it's it's cool, be, you know, to get to, even if you don't know Italian or not learning Italian, it's neat to kind of pick out some of the words. And it's especially neat with some of the demon names, because oh, I've yeah. noticed some editions do a full translation of the demon names and others leave them um, with their sort of fantastic sounding names like Scarmiglian. Um, you know, and you don't you don't necessarily want that translated into whatever. I forget what Scarmiglian is calling means. them evil claws or whatever. Evil claws. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, you know, or or pig nose or whatever uh, mm-hmm. the case may be. But having those those rich, uh, you know, Italian names is, is wonderful. Yeah. So anyway, I, I recommend all the ones I used. I think they're good. But but I would say if you're looking for good, succinct footnotes, I think maybe the, the John Chardy translation is, is the best to go with just because the footnotes are so accessible. And so and it was a good translation, too. He actually tries to do the rhyme, which some of the other ones oh, focus yeah. on less. But I also really love Gene Hollander's translation. I don't know. So any, I don't know. Uh, just take your pick from the following. Uh, but but I will emphasize yet again, like if you are interested in reading the Divine Comedy, it is not going to make a lick of sense unless you get some good footnotes to go along with it. Like it, it is just crammed with 
with medieval uh, like church politics and and Tuscan Italian politics and and re- references to recent history and the centuries previous, yeah, like personal vendettas. Be, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it is not going to make the slightest bit of sense to you unless you you get a uh, an edition that has some good footnotes and and can explain what all the references to proper nouns and all that are about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, here's another one. This comes to us from Shani. Shani writes in and says, Hi, two interesting notes about keys from my culture of origin, Orthodox Judaism. I'm no longer observant, but I am pretty enmeshed in the community because of my very religious family. Number one, there is a Jewish law that prohibits carrying anything outside of your home on the Sabbath, including your house keys. As a loophole, some people have their keys set in jewelry or accessories, such as a bracelet, uh, a brooch, or a belt, uh, because if the keys are part of your attire, it is permissible to wear outside. Number two, there is a Jewish custom that before the first Sabbath after Passover, remembering how the Jews were freed from Egypt and then wandered homeless around the desert for 40 years, many women will place a key into their chala dough before baking it as a uh, segula, loosely defined good omen, to always have a home to live in. I am not sure where this tradition originated. I have a feeling that it is based on an old Christian Easter tradition of forming bread to look like a cross, but I haven't found anything to substantiate that. I love your podcast, especially when it somehow tries different cultures. I'm sorry. I think it's supposed to be ties different cultures and histories together. Best, Shani. I also like it when it does that. (laughs) Thank you, Shani. Yeah. Yeah, this is really interesting. I I love rituals like this. Like the uh, uh, another thing that I like when they come together are the intersections of religious beliefs, rules, and prohibitions, sort of interacting with the practicalities of life, as we see explained, uh, especially in, in in your first point there. Rob, do you do y'all ever get hollow bread? Um, I guess we do. I'm not remembering yeah. it offhand. Um, but I think we have. Yeah, There's some some places in town that make good. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I, I am I'm very much in favor of bread. Um, <laughs> I wonder, have we ever done an episode that really goes into any um, bit of uh, Hebraic ritual? Uh, I mean, I, obviously, we dealt with like the Ark of the Covenant and all that, but um, any uh, I'm trying to think uh, if it's come up in like yeah, any of I our technology-based like invention episodes. Yeah, I feel like it's come up a good bit here and there. Okay, maybe I'm just blanking. I can only remember the Ark all of a sudden, so it's kind of all-consuming like that. Uh, we had a great piece of listener mail sometime last year when we did a couple of episodes about pointing that involved the yod. Yes, the, that's right. Uh, the the little pointer stick with the finger on it used for reading the Torah. That's right. Yeah, that's that that was a really good one. Okay, all right. Now I feel better. Okay, um, but yeah, I would. If there are any other uh, topics of that nature uh, that uh, that we could be covering, yeah, we'll have to uh, let us know, listeners. All right, this next message is about chemistry. It refers back to our episode on heavy water, but also a subsequent listener mail. Uh, And it is from Brett, who has written in before. Brett says... 
Hello, Robert and Joe. I hope you are both doing well and that 2021 has treated you kindly thus far. It's Brett again. I recently wrote uh, in about dichloromethane, or DCM, for organic synthesis and the Christmas tree ornament, which you read. Thank you. During that listener mail, another listener wrote in about heavy water, and it was then I realized I missed that podcast and had to go back, so pardon the late response. Deuterated water has a great history, and thank you for sharing it. As an organic chemist, people in my field rely on the properties of deuterium daily, not just for incorporation into potential active ingredients, which you mentioned, but also for uh, for solvent to characterize our compounds that we synthesize. Let me explain. I mentioned that chemists use nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR, to help provide us with information about the type of carbon-hydrogen bonds that our compounds possess. The NMR is so finely tuned that it detects the presence of these carbon-hydrogen bonds with great accuracy and precision, reproducibly. But, in order to obtain a spectra, for the most part, we use deuterated solvents, which all derive from heavy water. Deuterated solvents such as chloroform, methanol, and dimethyl sulfoxide allow the NMR to lock and shim, and I looked that up, I didn't know what that was, but that is a term in in, uh, nuclear magnetic resonance. Uh, to lock and shim based on the carbon-deuterium bond, allowing the instrument to focus on the small amount of material we are concerned with. If the solvent did not contain deuterium and only hydrogen, then the solvent would drown out the signal for our compounds because of how many more molecules of solvent there would be compared to our material. And then Brett says, maybe you know about the mole, uh, the MOL. Uh, I don't know much about it. I think that is that is a measure used in chemistry of like the number of elementary particles in a sample. Or, or I think it's the number of elementary particles that are equal to like a certain number of grams of carbon or something. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm no expert on that. Uh, but so I obviously don't know a lot about it. <laughs> um, Brett goes on. We also use a deuterated solvent to help us understand the mechanism of a reaction, how a reaction might proceed, by by exchanging a hydrogen for a deuterium atom, which when using NMR, the carbon-deuterium bond would not be present. Amazing how we can obtain information on something we cannot see and how we rely on instruments to help us figure out what we're doing. Thanks again for always providing great fodder for the mind. Tritium topic anytime soon? Best, (laughs) Brett. Uh, tritium, of course, being uh, the even heavier hydrogen. We, you know, we were talking mainly about uh, deuterium in that episode, which is hydrogen that's got a, uh, a one neutron in the nucleus where it normally would have no neutrons. Tritium has two neutrons, and, and it, gets, it gets really hairy. Yeah, um, I, I've, I've mined a lot of it in No Man's Sky before. Uh, I forget <laughs> what it's for offhand because I haven't played it in about a month. But uh, I look forward to picking it back up. It kind of um, – I think it's ultimately – you know, it's not the most educational of games, but it's uh, it's a pretty tame one to play with my son uh, around and let him play it some. And mm-hmm. he, he, it'll hopefully educate him about some of these elements. Uh, maybe yeah. not like what their actual purposes are, but <laughs> like what the names of them are. Yeah, yeah, just like the names will sink in and the abbreviations will sink in. Like that's mm-hmm. that's more than I had in video games uh, at his age. So I'll uh, take it. Yeah, same here. Great. Uh, so yeah, maybe we go to even heavier hydrogen. We'll do something on tritium, and then we can do what's beyond. Heavy, heavy hydrogen, like uh, like death hydrogen or thrash hydrogen. Thrash hydrogen, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Symphonic death hydrogen. That sounds good. All right, um, you know, we also received some uh, Weird House Cinema listener mails here, so we'll we'll dig into these a little bit. Uh, and and I have to say that um, 
Carney the mailbot has been very excited um, uh, because you know he's he's very much into the idea of uh, champion combat. <laughs> Uh, this first one comes to us from Jim in New Jersey, who, of course, is a, is a regular uh, listener mail um, uh, writer. Uh, he says, Robert and Joe, in Friday's Weird House Cinema, you featured Arena, where you mentioned that the password to a casino was swordfish. I don't know if this is the first use of swordfish, but it appears in the Marx Brothers movie Horse Feathers as the password to a speakeasy. And Jim includes a, a clip. Uh, I went and watched this, and this is a wonderful scene. You know, the comedy of Eon's past is uh, sometimes just not very funny anymore. It often, mm-hmm. often comedy does not translate across generations very well. But this scene is still really funny. It's great. <laughs> it's uh, 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 Groucho and – is it Chico or Chicho? It's spelled like Chico. I, I guess Chico or Chicho Marks. Um, is on the inside and Groucho's on the outside and they're they're talking through the the little window in the door and and Groucho's got like three guesses to figure out how what the password is and he gets mm-hmm. the hint that it's the name of a fish and his first guess is Mary which made me laugh a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't really seen a bunch of Marx Brothers. Um, I, I'm, I'm I'm struggling to. I mean, outside of just a few bits, you know, clips here and there. Like I think they did a mirror gag that uh, mm-hmm. that I think everybody has has seen. But but it is notable that you know, especially for like a previous generation of filmmakers, would have been even more familiar with Marx Brothers. You know, so uh, it it makes sense that we see these little nods in these films uh, to some of their work. There's that great scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where Sean Connery has mailed his diary to Harrison Ford in order for safekeeping because he's been captured by the Nazis. And then Harrison Ford brings it with him when he comes to rescue him. Uh So the Nazis get it. And Sean Connery says, I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I remember that. I haven't seen that one in in forever. Uh, I need to give it another go. Okay, this next message comes from Tend. It is also about Arena. Uh, Tend says, Dear Robert and Joe, I've been a listener of your show for years and am particularly enjoying the recent Weird House Cinema episodes. The choices you featured really are my types of movies. I think that's because I appreciate seeing how well a production company, film crew, and actors can do without having much of a budget. Even though this means the walls sometimes shake and performances are less than convincing, I love seeing those involved earnestly strain in their depictions. I had a real flutter of excitement when I saw you'd picked Arena to discuss, as I'd watched it not so long ago with my wife and brother-in-law. We were very much entertained by the varied and inventive alien designs as you described them. There was one thing I was waiting for you to point out about the movie, something I couldn't believe I had seen and so needed to rewind and pause it to confirm as we watched. During fight scenes in the arena itself, the camera often cuts to the audience and you can see many unmoving dummies filling out the crowd. (laughs) It's unbelievably badly done, looks fully ludicrous, and just made me love it more. You won't be able to watch Arena now without seeing this, I promise. Thanks to you and your team for all your work. I'm looking forward to the future episodes. Uh, and then there's a different name at the end of this than the name at the beginning, which was Tend. I'll just stick with Tend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't. I did not notice these um, these mannequins uh, when watching the film. Uh, I didn't I I either. Too distracted by the the, the cool aliens, but uh, it makes sense that they would be there. You need to fill out a stadium uh, or something that looks like a stadium. You might want to plant some uh, some fake butts in the fake seats. <laughs> <laughs> 
you you know what this means is you were so riveted to the action in the center of the frame that you were not you were not even tempted to wander around with your eyes to the periphery and see who might be sitting in the audience. Another thing could be, you know, at this point in the pandemic, like we're just not used to seeing live crowd shots anymore. Right. So it's yeah. like, oh, wow, that that looks right. That that must be what it's, it looks like to watch sports or something with uh, with a, with an audience viewing it. I, so this is weird. There are some shows that are they ha, they're used to having a live studio audience, and now they still do. But it's clearly a much redu- like people are sitting very far apart from each other, and there are many fewer of them. Mm-hmm. And so when they clap, it sounds so pathetic. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, it sounds like five people clapping, and it's just like it would be better without any applause than every joke or line getting like a you know a smattering of laughter from five or six people, or you know what what sounds like two people clapping in an empty hall. Is this of what it was? Did Saturday Night Live do this? Is this what you're referencing? No, I feel like I've I've just seen a couple of like talk shows, like late oh, night talk okay. shows, doing something like this. Okay, well, I guess my yeah, my only experience has been watching stuff like um, like Colbert and Daily Show, which don't have they they are not even pretending to have an audience. And then I I kind of keep up with some of the pro wrestling, so I kind of note how different players in that sport have been reacting to it. Like you have, uh, for instance, uh, you know, some places uh, and then sometimes during the pandemic, just having no audience at all, or to having like a completely fake audience of just people from the locker room come out and, mm-hmm. and you know be enthusiastic or you have a smattering option or you have like a high tech like fill the audience with tv screens and have people like zoom in to attend i mean there's there's so many different uh, approaches that have been taken none of them perfect but but it's interesting to see it kind of like uh, the, the 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 listener mail earlier talking about the uh, the earnest straining right yeah <laughs> sometimes that is the most interesting part i've got an idea that i think they should do this seems perfectly realistic to me i mean so on one hand it would seem very fake if you were to just pipe in fake laughter or fake applause at each applause line like in a sitcom you know uh-huh. but I think you could do real electronic laughter or applause where there are a bunch of electronic viewers and they can like press a certain button. They're watching in real time and they can press a certain button every time they want to either laugh or applaud. And that will create one sound of one person laughing or applauding. And so you get real reactions like the jokes that actually get uproarious laughter will get uproarious laughter uh, organically, but mediated through electronic devices and, and the ones that kind of bomb you'll hear them bomb that's what i think should happen yeah yeah all right here's another one this one comes to us from ian ian writes even though this isn't a comedy podcast i derive some great belly laughs from your show uh you both know when to use it and when not to uh better leave some songs unsung than to sing them out of season right you're wise and worthy singers anyway i wanted to tell you joe that i genuinely laughed out loud by myself when you said i want to see chewbacca fight jabba the hutt from (laughs) arena episode lol you couldn't have picked a funnier match from star wars good jest sir peace out love you guys uh ian uh, from oh. St. Louis, uh, Ian, the, the far too kind. But uh, I think I am. I seeing this right that you were quoting from the Kalevala. I think right. If I'm getting this right, I think at the beginning of your your uh, message, you're quoting a couple of lines. Uh, the better to leave some songs unsung than sing them out of season. Is that not from the Kalevala that we read in a previous episode? Oh, I think you might be right. Yeah, yeah. 
Very, very good, uh, uh, deep, deep reference there. Yeah. And yeah, Chewbacca fighting Jabba the Hutt, that's a good matchup. Um, there, there, there are probably some others we could we could really brainstorm if we set our mind to it. I don't know. Um, like a, a Wampa versus four Jawas stacked on top of each other in a <laughs> trench coat. That would be neat. What if you had a fight between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Boba Fett's dad? That'd be really weird. Oh, we had that. <laughs> <laughs> we had that. That one's. That, I watched that, that one the other day. That was my joke. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the, the boy and I uh, watched the first half of Attack of the Clones together. Um, and uh, and that, that's, that's a pretty solid fight scene. I like that one. Okay. You got the various Mandalorian weapons uh, in, in, in play there against the Jedi. Mm-hmm. You got kind of, a, kind of a neat fight environment. Oh, here's one. I think we should someday, uh, if, we're, if we're feeling uh, especially fresh, we should do an episode of invention that's basically a Boba Fett invention special where we discuss all of his gadgets. This, I, we know, I actually did a blog post about this at samudamusic.com. Oh. Uh, where I, um, I kind of uh, waxed, uh, maybe not philosophical, but I, I, I contemplated the weapons of the Mandalorian and was thinking about, like, the idea of, of the Mandalorian armor as being, on one hand, everything is geared about fighting a Jedi, like how to best engage a Jedi and survive or even um, emerge victorious. But mm-hmm. then also you get into this idea of their armor and their weapons being a, a parts of their religion, uh, which is a, a fabulous topic with, with parallels to the real world. You think of things like the, the Sikh uh, religion and all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got me thinking, like, what additional connotations might be absorbed by some of these weapons like the idea of say like the jetpack does the jetpack then become something that symbolizes not is you know not just about escaping distance creating distance between yourself and a jedi who's a deadly melee combatant Mm -hmm. but also something about the spirit you know like the ascension of the spirit um perhaps the fire uh like the little flamethrower in the wrist like that becomes something about like the purifying flame or something you know like there's so many directions you could go in with all these different details of the arm or they could almost be like the iconography you encounter in a Hindu deity. Like each, you know, each little detail has some sort of important meaning uh, to um, those who would be, you know, uh, literate of those symbols. Well, if you're going to be realistic about jetpacks, it would, unless uh, I've not kept up to date about what jetpacks are capable of these days, it seems like it should symbolize uh, riding a dragon or riding a tiger, you know, something yeah. that will very likely kill you and get out of control. That that's often how it goes <laughs> for yeah. the Mandalorians, but you know it's like short term um, victories, I mm-hmm. guess, is what they're they're focused on. All right, well the the, the buzzer on the mailbot is going off. That means uh, the, the time is uh, is ended for today. Uh, that's it for this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind Listener Mail. But we'll be back next week with more Listener Mail. So just tune in then. Uh, in the meantime, definitely feel free to reach out to us. Uh, your responses to past episodes, your responses to this Listener Mail. Uh, you know, keep the conversation going by getting in touch with us. And if you would like to listen to the show, just remember the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed can be found wherever you get your podcast and wherever that happens to be just rate review and subscribe huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.